Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll be reading the entire chapter of Luke 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. 
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And he indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, and he had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. You may be seated. Uh, would you please bow your heads with me as we pray? Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we have so much to be grateful for today. We pray that you'd please send the Holy Spirit upon us, that you would open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might reflect on what it is you want us to know. Uh, and then grant, please, Father, that we would live the rest of our lives changed by this gospel truth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. If you would please uh, turn to that passage, either in the bulletin or in the Bible. We're looking at the next to last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Uh, this is uh, the anniversary of the um, release of a very famous movie called The Passion of the Christ. I don't know if you uh, saw it or not. I saw it. Uh, it was released in 2004. Uh, in fact, it was released during Lent. 2004. It first showed up on Ash Wednesday, 2004. It was produced, directed, and co-written by Mel Gibson, um, who is one of my favorite actors. Uh, it stars a man named uh, uh, Jim Caviezel, who does a memorable job 
uh, in this movie. Of course, as a Reformed Christian, I'm, I'm slightly troubled by uh, the second uh, commandment concerns of that movie. So I don't, I, I'm cautious in my references to it. But one of the reasons I bring it up is because of the focus in this movie, which I think is a little bit like the world's focus on the crucifixion. The, the world thinks of the crucifixion in the terms that you see in that movie. Um, the, the intense physicality, the blood, the suffering, the stripes, uh, that is the focus uh, that um, Mel Gibson and Jim Caviezel bring to this movie, which sold uh, $612 million in ticket sales. Uh, that's the way the world understands the cross, if it understands the cross at all. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Herod, who... Uh, was curious about Jesus when uh, Pilate sent him to Herod. And I think the world is sometimes curious about Jesus. They're sometimes curious about some of the things they've heard about Jesus. And so the world understands Jesus primarily, if it understands him at all, in, in terms of the, the physical suffering of the cross. And it's absolutely true that the physical suffering of the cross is very, very real. Uh, Mel Gibson did not make that up. It is described uh, in the uh, Gospels, which he looked to for the substance of the movie's content. He pulled together different things described in the, in the four Gospels, as well as things from Roman Catholic tradition. He brought all that, turned it into a movie. Well, I think possibly some of us have some of that in our heads when we turn to Luke chapter 23. Perhaps we're curious about it. Perhaps we're um, intrigued by all the dramatic uh, images, the, the things that that movie describes. Well, I'd like for us to push that to one side and try to look at Luke chapter 23 as though we were reading it for the first time. That, that's impossible to do, isn't it? But let's try to do it. Let's look and see what Luke is actually telling us about. Forget Mel Gibson for a minute. Let's think about what is Luke trying to tell us? And then a step further back still, what is the Holy Spirit telling us? What does the Holy Spirit focus on in this telling of the crucifixion of Christ? And I think there are some surprises. First of all, what happened? Well, uh, Luke chapter 23 describes at least, you could say, three things. It's, it's set in the context of a trial. That's uh, chapter 23, verses 1 to 4. The whole company arises, and they bring Jesus before Pilate. By the way, that whole company, according to Luke chapter 22, verses uh, 66 and following, that whole company is the religious establishment of Jerusalem. It's actually the council, the Jewish council of Jerusalem. They're the ones who, in chapter 23, they usher Jesus in to stand before Pilate. And they there make certain charges. He is forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. There's actually no reference to that in any of Jesus' sermons, any of his teaching. They say he is calling himself the Christ, a king. They're distorting, twisting Jesus' words. 
And so they bring these charges and present them to Pilate. These are not actually the charges they talk about in chapter 22. In chapter 22, what they're arguing with Jesus about and what gets them so stirred up and eager to do violence towards him is the claim he makes about being God's son. That's what has them so stirred up. But they realize Pilate the pagan has very little understanding and even less interest in their religious debates. So when they take Jesus before Pilate in chapter 23, what they're charging him with is political sedition. See, that's the way the world thinks. That's the way the world understands these things. They're disinterested in Jesus' claims to be the Son of God. Jesus is asserting his right to stand in the presence of his Father and to to be the manifestation of God in the world. Uh, That's of very little interest to Pilate. In fact, when the conversation moves that direction, he gets less and less interested and wants to dismiss the charges. But that's where it starts. It's all in the context here of a trial. Pilate, Herod have roles to play, and they're described in verses um, 1 to 17. Uh, But the three things that are really focused on here in this chapter, and which are hardly mentioned in the popular understanding of what actually happened at the crucifixion, these are the three things that mattered to Luke, And we can say these are the three things that matter to the Holy Spirit. The three things are, first of all, the uh, description here of uh, Christ's uh, coming into crucifixion in verse 33. Just skip down to verse 33. This is really what chapter 23 is describing. It's all built around verse 33, and it's, it's remarkably short. Notice how terse it is. Verse 33. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. It's interesting. Luke often has these very abbreviated descriptions of things. To sum up all that goes into a, a powerful dramatic experience like what happens in Luke 23, it's centered on something as simple as they crucified him. There's no mention of blood and gore. There's no mention of of Jesus being twisted and torn. Those are realities of crucifixion, but that's not what Luke focuses on. You see, we're, we're tending towards focusing on the physical dimensions of crucifixion, and they're real. But that wasn't Luke's primary concern. His primary concern was not on the physical implications, the physical experience of crucifixion. His concern was on the spiritual. What did the physical suffering of Christ have to do with the spiritual reality of the crucifixion? That's where Luke puts his attention. And actually, you and I should put our attention there as well. That's not to take away from the physical reality of the crucifixion, but it's actually to focus on what Luke wants us to focus on, what the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on, and what we should be thinking about this morning. Palm Sunday 2021. It's more than the physical suffering of one criminal or one man charged with being a criminal. 
in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There are lots of suffering people in the world. There are lots of people who've been bloodied and beaten. But there was something unique about what happened to Jesus. There's something unique about his crucifixion. And it was not primarily about his physical suffering. Luke has a different focus. So the chapter that we're looking at this morning at the center has to do with this crucifixion of Christ. Verse 46, it also has to do with the death of this crucified man. Look down at verse 46. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus was crucified. Jesus died. He really died. In fact, over and over again in the remaining part of this chapter, we're going to see there were witnesses to his death. It was very important that there were witnesses to the fact that Jesus really and truly died. One of the great religions of the world, Islam, cannot accept that Jesus died on the cross. It goes against their understanding of Allah. It goes against their understanding of the prophet Jesus. The prophet Jesus could not die. So like the curious world, uh, they look... What do you make of this? Well, Luke wants us to make of it something very important. This crucified one died. He really died. It's just one sentence, but Luke leaves no doubt. He breathed his last. I don't know about you, but when I I read those words, I'm moved by them. I'm moved by the thought of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He breathed his last breath. And then thirdly, down in chapter 23, verse 53, there's another surprising point in this chapter about the crucifixion. Verse 53 says, They took the body down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. He was buried. He was crucified, he really died, and he was buried. You notice that shows up in the creed. Why does the creed specify that Jesus was buried? Why does that matter? Well, we're going to see. Why does it matter is why it's here. So Luke, when he writes this description of the crucifixion of Christ, he doesn't focus on the blood and gore. He doesn't focus on the physical suffering of Christ, as real as that is. What he focuses on instead is the crucifixion of Christ. In one sentence, he was crucified. He died and he was buried. Now we can put a lot of things around those three central experiences. But Luke is emphasizing those three central things. That's what happened on that Good Friday, which we'll be remembering later this week, that's what happened that first Good Friday, and that's what forms the center of what we're doing here today. These three physical realities, the crucifixion, the means of death, the death, and the burial of Christ. 
And those are the main things that happen in this story. One chapter long. Uh, the Passion of Christ is two hours plus. Uh, in Luke's telling, chapter 23, it's one chapter which was read for us very well, concisely, in just a few minutes. Those are the three things that happened. Now, why do those three things matter? Why is it 2,000 years later, we're not looking at them with curiosity like the world, we're looking at them with gratitude and humility and reverence and praise. Because those three things matter to us. And Luke wants us to know that. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that. Why does it matter? Let me give you three reasons why the story Luke tells matter. Why does this story matter to us? Well, first of all, there's this idea of exchange. I don't know if you were paying attention as we read through the story, but over and over again, there's this idea of exchanging. So in chapter 23, verse 18, it says, They all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. In other words, here in the middle of Jesus' trial, as he's uh, being brought up on these charges, the uh, people are calling out, we want Barabbas freed, the insurrectionist, the rebel, the murderer. We want him freed. And Christ, whom Pilate himself had said he found no crime in him, they want him crucified. Isn't that interesting? Here in chapter 23, to pause to tell us this story about an, a known murderer who the people wanted freed, and an innocent man the people wanted to die, to be crucified in a violent way. Well, there's this exchange. Pilate keeps trying to free Jesus. The pagan wants to free Jesus. The crowd, mostly Jewish people, the, the faithful of Jerusalem, they're calling out louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him. I remember a few years ago in my previous church years ago, uh, we would read through this chapter, and we would read it as a congregation. Maybe you've done it that way. It's very interesting to read the telling of Luke 23 uh, as a group. And there would be different people assigned to read different parts. And when we get to this part, it always said, the whole congregation joins in, crucify, crucify him. And it's, it's, it feels strange to be sitting in a group of Christian people calling out, crucify him. I remember having a conversation with a, with a friend later saying, that hurts. It hurts to hear my voice saying these words, crucify him. Well, the point of Luke's gospel is that the same crowd that greeted Jesus with praises and hallelujahs and hosannas, when Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, that same crowd within days became the crowd calling out, crucify him. Those who praised him actually joined their voices in calling out for him to be crucified. And there's this interesting exchange between Barabbas and Jesus. Well, you know what Jesus' name means? The Lord saves. You know what Barabbas means? Son of the Father. Interesting, isn't it? 
Barabbas, whose name literally meant son of the father, who's a criminal and a murderer, is being held up to exchange for Jesus, the true son of the father, and the world's calling out, crucify him, crucify Jesus. The idea is, at the end, Pilate lets Barabbas, the criminal, go free. And Jesus, the innocent, dies. The murderer is set free. The innocent one dies. This idea of an exchange, it's right through this chapter. Because Luke turns immediately from talking about Barabbas to talking about Simon of Cyrene. Simon's a, an innocent onlooker who's here in the crowd in Jerusalem because of the Passover. He's there, and as they are making their way towards the cross, uh, towards the uh, Calvary, they, they bring Jesus along the way towards the place he would be crucified, and they grab this innocent bystander, Simon of Sorini, and they drag him, and they make him carry the cross. There's this exchange symbolic, this idea of, of the cross, the, the punishment is laid on Simon who helps Jesus carry the cross uh, as Jesus makes his way to die. There's another exchange. It's at the very end in verse 50. Uh, Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he has a tomb. He's a righteous man, a, an upstanding member of the council. Perhaps he had been there in Luke 22. Uh, It says he didn't side with the ones who wanted to uh, kill Jesus, but he had been there, perhaps. He was certainly a member of the council. He could have been there. Well, Joseph had a tomb. They seize his tomb, or he offers them his tomb, and Jesus is buried in the tomb of Joseph. Again, there's this idea of transfer, exchange. Well, this idea of exchange is actually at the heart of what Luke wants us to understand about the crucifixion. At the crucifixion, there is a great exchange, a once-for-all perfect exchange, where an innocent person, Jesus, exchanges with a guilty person, with a guilty people. You and me and all of us together, Jesus exchanges place with us. He takes upon himself the punishment that we deserve. The guilty ones. He takes on himself the punishment we deserve. And he gives us his righteousness. He gives us the perfect righteousness of his sinless life. And that's why we call it Good Friday. Because the sinless one takes upon himself the punishment that we deserve, the punishment that we owe. He takes on himself that punishment. And Luke wants us to know about it. It's it's at the heart of what he's describing. It's actually the fulfillment of what we saw last week in Luke 22, where Luke was quoting Isaiah, where the sinless one is counted among the unrighteous. He is counted among the unrighteous for us. He pays the penalty we deserve to pay. 
So there's this great exchange. In verse 39, look down at verse 39, one of the most wonderful short passages in the Gospel of Luke. One of the criminals who's hanging there beside Jesus, Jesus the innocent one, and one on each side of him, criminals, are hanging there. Uh, One calls out, save yourself and us, do something. But the other one says, do you not fear God, fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And in that simple exchange on the cross, as they are dying, there's a great promise uttered on Jesus' lips. Verse 43, truly, he says to a criminal who's, who's dying on a cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Is there a more glorious promise than to know that by Jesus' own promise, we will know eternal life in paradise with him? That was the promise he gave the criminal on the cross as he died. Uh, He had not had the benefit of the different things you would like to have seen in his life. He was a criminal, for crying out loud. He was a a guilty person by his own estimation. There's no record of him being baptized. There's no record of him doing any of the things you would like to see him do in his life. The only thing we see him do is look to Jesus And call out to Jesus. And you know what? That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And to that simplest expression of faith, that tiny kernel of faith, to a dying man, Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise. What a promise. It's a great promise. It's the greatest promise, the promise of the gospel. And then finally, there's a great reconciliation. It's a, it's a funny little detail. Look down at verses 44 and then verse 45. Luke says, it was now about the sixth hour. That'd be about three in the afternoon. They counted from 9 a.m. or so. So the sixth hour is about three o'clock in the afternoon. There was darkness over the whole land. That's unusual. Until the ninth hour, sorry, from new, uh, the sixth hour, they started at 6 a.m., and the sixth hour is noon, and then it says the ninth hour, and the ninth hour is three, three o'clock in the afternoon. And the, the sun's light failed during this time. And then at the end of verse 45, notice this the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Luke's not the only gospel writer to make mention of the fact that in the temple in Jerusalem, at the very center of Jerusalem, there in the temple, the curtain was torn in two. Why make this point? Why did Luke record for us, and why did the Holy Spirit record for us that the curtain was torn in two? Is it it simply a matter of religious observances? Is Is that what was on Luke's mind? No, the tearing of the curtain which according to one of the other gospel writers was from the top down, so it wasn't a, an, somebody come in who came in with some scissors 
and, uh, and, and as a human being tore the curtain in two. No, the, the curtain was torn from the top down. In other words, from God down, the curtain at the crucifixion of Christ, at his death, the curtain is torn for us. And what that is actually pointing us towards, again, is why it's Good Friday. Because at the crucifixion, when Jesus took upon himself the penalty we owed, when he died, then there was the great reconciliation accomplished for all those who put their trust in Jesus like the thief on the cross. We're now reconciled with God. The curtain which symbolized the separation between sinners and God, that curtain is torn in two. It's torn in two for those who put their trust in Jesus. That's what baptism symbolizes. At its, at its core, Baptism is a physical expression of a faith in Christ. We had a wonderful discussion this morning talking about the gospel, talking about sin and the ongoing reality of sin. It's real. Had this discussion just this morning before we gathered here for our service. It's real. And then at the cross, Jesus reconciles us to the holy God who is rightly displeased with our sin. It's Jesus who makes it possible for sinners like us to come into his presence. It's not by our trying to do better. It's not by our trying to be religious. It is actually putting our hope and our trust in the dying man. The man who has died for us. That's the saving gospel. It is not try and do better. It is not live a moral life. The gospel message is put your trust in the one who has lived a sinless life and then follow him in obedience. Trust him though. That is the salvation of the gospel. It is putting our hope and trust in Christ, which is all the dying thief did. (laughs) With his dying breaths, in his last moments, he looked to Jesus He looked to Jesus and said, remember me. In English, two little words, remember me. Brothers and sisters, that's the cry of the gospel. Remember me, Jesus. 